I've had the privilege of being in and around banking for more than 50 years. Lots of changes during that time. We've gone from ledgers to laptops, typewriters to technology. One thing, however, remains the same. Banking is a people business, and I'll be talking with those people that make banking great here on Jack Rats with Modern Bankers. Welcome to Jack Rants with Modern Bankers, and it's brought to you by RELPRO and Vertical IQ. Every week I feature top voices in financial services, bankers, consultants, best-selling authors, and more. The goal here is to provide insights, success practices, and to bring new ideas to the table that you can use to maximize your results in 2024. I found someone else who rants about selling and sales leadership. It's my guest today, Dave Curlin. Dave holds nothing back when it comes to talking about the sales profession, and you're going to have a great time with this one today. And by the way, he doesn't need to hold back. He's got a lot of data to back everything he says up. Dave founded Curlin and Associates in 1985. He also launched Objective Management Group in 1990, and that research with 33,000 people led him to his discovery of 21 key sales competencies of high performers. And we're gonna talk about some of those today. Dave is a top rated speaker and best-selling author of the great book, Baseline Selling. I love it because it's a baseball analogy. Get your notepad out for this fast paced conversation about sales strategies with Dave Curlin of Curlin and Associates on Jack Rants with Modern Bankers. Here we go. Well, as I mentioned in the introduction, I, I think Dave Curlin is what I would call the king of data sales. Um, and we'll get into that a little bit. Um, and Dave's also done a lot with sales training. And one of the things I love is his sales training is all based on baseball, which is which is something we'll probably talk about. It's so cool. Dave, great to have you with us today. Oh, it's great to be here, Jack. Thanks for inviting me. I'm excited. Well, let's talk as we go into 2024. I always like to talk about something good. Tell me something good. What's going on good in your life? Oh, this is a great time for me because I am no longer burdened by being the CEO of Objective Management Group. So that's a load off my plate. And while I'm proud of what we accomplished there over the last 33 years, it was time. And now I'm back doing what I really love, which is sales development, sales training, sales coaching, sales consulting. And uh, I'm very excited about that. That's great. Well, let, let's start with, with OMG. Um, you started at OMG in 1990. Um, uh, you, your sales assessments and your sales data, your sales research, uh, 33,000 uh, organizations, uh, 52 countries, 2.2 million salespeople, that's what it spans. Um, you, you've got some interesting information. Let's start there. I know I could ask you, well, tell me the most important piece of information. And that's ridiculous because there's so much. But thank God the things that you you found. What are what are a few things that you that you came in aha moments or said, boy, those are the most important things in sales? Even filtering the question like that, it's still a hard one for me. Um, but I, I think the ahas are probably the things 
that I talk about the most, and that's the impact of sales process. You know, that having a thorough, custom, optimized, properly sequenced, staged sales process that salespeople actually follow, which leads to predictable outcomes and results, which eliminates wasted time, is freaking huge. And that might be one of the areas where the sales profession has made the most progress over 30 years. Because when I wrote Baseline Selling, that was 2004 to 2005. At that time, only 9% of salespeople we're following any kind of a formal sales process. And that's up to closer to 40% now. So 40% still sucks, but at least we can see that, that the gap is getting filled. Whereas you look at something as important as uh, uh, taking a consultative approach. And there still isn't even consensus as to what that is. Mm -hmm. Never mind, do we see many salespeople who are any good at that? And taking a consultative approach and uncovering their compelling reasons to buy and creating some urgency out of that is the key to the entire sales cycle. And the fact that only like 26% of salespeople can do that is pretty disappointing. But I think the and I have statistics coming out of my ears. Uh, I've forgotten more statistics than I remember, but the one that I keep coming back to is the one on reaching decision makers. Yeah. This is the, the global statistic that salespeople who get in front of that decision maker early in the sales process are 341% more likely to get that business. And, you know, I've seen that as bad as a 900% gap in some companies. And the other thing is new salespeople, less than three years in sales. Only 1% of them are capable of getting themselves you know, in front of or on the phone with a decision maker. And if you're not with the right person, your chances of getting the business aren't very good. Made by bankers for bankers, Vertical IQ is your trusted source for reliable, convenient, and focused industry intelligence, helping your team save time, boost sales and gain a competitive edge. Learn more at verticaliq.com. Yeah. yeah. I want to go back to the sales process a little bit. If we agree that 40% sucks and it, but it's better than what it was, there's got to be a reason why 60% of salespeople in America choose not to follow a sales process. Talk about what the reasons that you found in that regard. There are there are a number of reasons. Um, a lot of different reasons, like the, the company that I was working with earlier today, it was a team, it was a small team of sales engineers. You know, they shouldn't have even been in sales. They're engineers. And somebody got the brilliant idea that the engineers know more about our stuff than anybody. So they're the ones that ought to be talking to our prospects. Maybe, but they're not capable of getting those conversations started. And they're not capable of getting those conversations finished. They're capable of matching technology up somewhere in the middle. So somebody else, like a salesperson, ought to be quarterbacking 
that call. And so in those companies, it, there's a total lack of sales process. They don't even know what sales process is other than, well, you, you get in front of somebody, you tell them what you do, you do a proposal, and they tell you whether or not they're going to buy from you. And for a lot of salespeople in a lot of companies, that's the sales process. Um, I've worked with other companies that are technologically advanced, and very structured and very process oriented. And they have sales process, at least that's what they say. But then you get a look at it and it's 37 steps and it's got all kinds of diagrams. You know, you go this and then go here and then go there. And, and, and if you look really close at it, and you're looking for the part of that diagram that's actually sales process. It For me, it's usually, it comes right here in between uh, introduction and qualified. And those are adjacent steps. <laughs> so they found an opportunity and it's qualified enough to, to do a proposal. But the, the sales process, the actual selling process is missing from all of that. So there's 36 non-selling steps in there. And then uh, there's all the old school companies, you know, the, I, I hate to use a broad brush stroke, but, you know, like lumber companies um, that, that are just still as old school as they come. And, you know, they don't have CRM yet. And they go, sales process? What's that? Yeah. Um, so, you know, sales has always been a wing it, go by the seat of your pants kind of profession. Um People get into sales either because they weren't qualified to do anything else or they were given an ultimatum. If you, you know, during one of the recessions, well, we're going to have to lay people off. The only way I can justify keeping you is if you uh, take some sales responsibility and find us some business. They're, you know, career night at high school. Sales isn't even one of the careers on the list. I, I talked my way into a career night at my son's high school. And they oh. said, that's a great idea. And this was during COVID. This was 2020. So I had a Zoom room all set up for anybody who was interested in sales. Nobody showed up. Oh. So people don't go into sales intentionally. So if you're doing it because it's the only thing you're qualified to do, if you're forced into it or you fall into sales some other accidental way, there's no licenses, there's no diplomas, there's no instruction when they do sales training for new salespeople, it's all product training. And everybody just assumes if you are one, you'll know what to do. And what we know as salespeople is, yeah, get in front of somebody, you make a presentation, and then you try to close. And there is no process. So the fact that we're 400% better than we were 20 years ago, is good, but we're a, we're in a processless profession. And those of us in the space have been screaming at the top of our lungs for the last 25, 30 years to try to fix what's wrong. Um, but even, even the leadership at most companies don't see the need to fix sales. They, I think they're happier complaining about how come our budgets are never met. How come our forecasts are wrong? How come we've gone three straight quarters without hitting our numbers? What's wrong? And they want to blame something instead of saying, we need to do to the sales organization what we've done to every other department in the company. 
Yeah, for sure. That that was my short answer. No, it's great. And, and but but you you talked about a variety of ways to get into sales. But let's say I I'm I'm a company and I'm hiring salespeople. You have you developed a tool at OMG called the Sales Candidate Assessment. Um, I'm curious about what that tool looks like. And how many companies out there are actually using sales assessments to see if this is if this person is a fit for me? Okay, well, let's start with the last question. How many companies out there are using it? There's what sixteen million companies just in the United States, but they don't all qualify. A lot of them are in retail. A lot of them are tiny services businesses. A lot of them service consumers in their home. So if you narrowed it down to like B and B, B2B sales, there's 4 million companies. And if we look at the 33,000 companies using OMG sales candidate assessment, that's what, 1%? So there's your answer, 1%. Uh, what does it do though? Um, by measuring all 21 sales core competencies, and comparing that candidate's capabilities in those 21 sales core competencies to the specifications required for success in a specific role at a specific company in a specific industry, selling to a specific decision maker in a specific marketplace, it determines whether or not that candidate will succeed in that role or not. So I'm on the rope now. I'd like some coaching. Um, talk to me about what you're, uh, here's what I see in banking. We do a lot of deal coaching um, it, it, or operations coaching, but from a sales behavioral perspective, there isn't a lot of that going on, especially in commercial where we hire commercial bankers. And I've heard a lot of banks say, well, we hire adults. They don't need coaching. What's the state of coaching in sales today? Oh, don't get me started. Oh, I do. Um, I want to get you started. Yeah, it's bad. It's really bad. If for for at least the last 20 years, at minimum, 50% of a sales manager's role is to coach up their salespeople. So with that for context, if we look at OMG's data, only 7% of all the sales managers out there are any good at doing that. And there's two parts. Are they doing it consistently? And are they doing it effectively? And the data shows that when sales managers coach consistently, they see a 28% increase in revenue. And when they do it consistently and effectively, they'll see a 43% increase in revenue. But when we evaluate sales teams and sales people answer the questions about how frequently they're coached and what the topics are that they're coached on, we see that most sales managers just aren't doing it. And when they are doing it, they're talking about all the wrong things. Hmm. Amazing. Well, then I got to ask the, the, the obvious question. If, if, if Simon Sinek were here, he would say, well, there's some whys around here. Maybe five. Can we get him here? Well, I would love that. But we can't. But we can ask the question, why? Why isn't more of this going on? If it's so important. It's a, it's a great question. And it's it's certainly easier to explain 
relative to sales managers than it was relative to salespeople. Because who gets promoted into those sales management jobs? The best salespeople. Does that qualify them to be a sales manager? Not usually. Uh, did they exhibit the skills of a sales manager when they were a top salesperson? Not so much. And who modeled the sales manager job for them? Some other lousy sales manager. So nobody, nobody really knows what sales managers are supposed to do. And nobody's modeling the right behaviors and activities and functions for the salespeople to model when they get in that role. And leadership teams don't really have a clue what sales managers are supposed to do, except, uh, you know, take care of it. You know, so we, we do three-day sales leadership intensives where almost 80% of the focus on those three days are coaching salespeople. What what should coaching consist of? When do you coach? What different kinds of coaching are there? What is good coaching? What is a consistent cadence? And then we we have we have actual live recorded coaching conversations from over the last 10 to 20 years. And we play seven or eight of them, depending on the audience. And they're like case studies studies. And uh, they listen to them, they study them, and then we talk about what happened in those coaching conversations to try to, by the end of the training, to try to get them to say, oh, I get it now. I understand. It's And it's, for the people that go through that training, it's it's miraculous what they're able to do later on. But it's hard work to get them from coaching is a conversation at a water cooler or when they're driving in the car to coaching is more like a debriefing and a role play and they suck at role playing and avoid it like the plague. But the only way you can demonstrate to a salesperson what good sounds like is to role play with them. Let's take it up a little. So Maybe. I your training. Uh, yeah. I, I, I love the training. Um, and, and I do three-day sales management training too, and the light bulbs go off all over the place, and here's the problem. They leave, and now they That's go correct. back to the real world, and they get started, and they do some stuff. But what happens to them? Are they coached? So I'm wondering what you're seeing, because in banking, if I'm a regional manager, if I'm a district manager, and a regional manager is over me, the likelihood that I get coached is pretty low. So I go through the training and I tend to plateau in terms of my skills. What are you seeing in other industries in terms of coach the coach, getting getting that upper level being accountable to coach their coaches? Well, it, it's, it's kind of like a three-legged stool, as you well know. So uh, if we put the right program together with the company, then after that three-day sales leadership training, there's going to be weekly or bi-weekly one-on-one or group coaching sessions for those sales managers to keep them focused on coaching, uh, to continue demonstrating what good sounds like, to help them talk through their problem children uh, that aren't receptive to coaching or won't do what they're being coached to do. Uh, and, but we also have to have that conversation with uh, upper leadership. Somebody has to hold those sales managers accountable for doing the coaching in the way that a sales manager should be holding salespeople accountable for making calls and having the right conversations. So 
that that's one of the other things that we see in the data is the the utter lack of accountability and lack of responsibility that's running rampant throughout organizations. Every, everybody's got a great reason for why stuff didn't happen. Everybody can rationalize away any kind of negative result. And it sounds good, but it's not. And we have to do away with the rationalizing. You know, I, I've got a thing I do with uh, the thumb and the index finger. So let, let's put it in your world. Um, a VP of commercial loans uh, tells her boss that she's going to land this $500,000 loan today. And uh, she goes out and the, the customer doesn't sign the documents because he was offered a similar loan from another bank for a half a point less. And she comes back and her boss said, how did it go? She said, we didn't get it. And he said, well, what happened? And she takes her index finger and says, the customer lied to me, didn't tell me that, that she was talking to somebody else, points the finger. The other bank lowballed us. They reduced their rates to get the business, points at us. You guys didn't give me the rate I needed. So that, that's not fair to me. So she's living with her index finger. The customer, the competitor, us. And what we want her to be able to do, and this changes everything, is to take her thumb instead of her index finger. The index finger points that way. The thumb points this way. And we need her to be able to say, I wasn't effective enough overcoming the lower rate that the competition offered. And that starts a coaching conversation. That walks right into, so what would you have done differently if you had it all to do all over again? And now we're coaching. And part of this goes to your 21 competencies. Mm -hmm. You wrote a phenomenal post right after the first of the year. Um, and, and you put together, a, 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 I call it a nine box. And it's got the 21 competencies in it. And as you get closer to the center, these are the really important ones, I believe. This was inspired, I think, by an article that you read about Shohei Otani. Talk about the article and this nine box thing. So my son's a college baseball player. And when he was in high school, uh, when he was getting recruited by colleges, I ended up on every showcase that we signed him up for, I got on another mailing list. So I was bombarded with newsletters from organizations helping to place kids, coach kids, sell kids. And um, the I managed to get myself off of every newsletter except one because I was actually getting value out of the newsletters I was getting from Coach Mark Brooks. And uh, so I still get his and I'll copy and paste them and text them to my son, who's a senior at Bard College. And this earlier this week, he sent out a really good one where he was talking about goals. There are the things you can't control, uh, like the weather and whether the coach puts you in the lineup and uh, how you perform on a given day. But there's a lot of stuff you can control. And his, his message was about the things you can control and focusing on that. As an example, he shared this grid 
uh, that Shohei Otani had put together when he was in high school in Japan. And it had all the things that he could control. Each block of nine cells had one core goal that he needed to accomplish. And it was surrounded by eight easier to control things that he could work on to achieve that goal. And in the center of the grid, the, you know, there were, there were, it was a lot like Sudoku, you know, with the nine cells, but there were nine blocks of nine cells. So in the middle block of nine, the middle cell in the center of it all highlighted in yellow for Otani was be the number one pick in the draft. He couldn't control that, but he could control all the stuff that would lead to that. And I looked at it and just the way my my mind works, I went, we could do this for sales. I could pull the, the most important sales competencies and the things that you can work on to get better in each of those competencies to achieve the yellow highlighted thing in the middle, which would be to exceed quota. Or, or maybe it's lead the company in sales or lead the industry in sales, lead the world in sales. It doesn't really matter. So I adapted that grid for sales, and it's a combination of goals and competencies that salespeople can work on in order to crush their quotas. Do the right things right uh, is something I've always taught. And it used to be a little easier to teach it there's some complexities that are going on in 2024, and I want to explore uh, AI with you a little bit. Um, I've heard many sales consultants say this AI is the death of sales, that there's 1.3 million salespeople in America, and maybe that's low or high, but they're all going to go away. I've heard others say, look, ChatGPT is there. Just use it as a tool. Don't worry about it. What's your take on AI in sales today? This is a very complex question. Um, and I've written about it. I even uh, had ChatGPT write one of my articles for me. It wasn't bad, but it wasn't me. I mean, I recognized my writing. I didn't recognize chat. And I cha trained ChatGPT to write the way I write. I had it learn uh, a dozen of my articles to write in my voice. And it... It kind of formatted it the way I did, um, but it just wrote about stuff using words I would never use and and points that are common over the internet. But I try not to go with common or general. You know, I, I've got my own stuff that I uh, write about, and I usually start with data. So that was my experience with chat with actually using Chat GPT. I put Chat. GPT into the same category that I put inbound marketing back at the turn of the century, back when uh, HubSpot was king. And uh, the guys at HubSpot, um, they were basically starting to write stuff like selling is dead. Mm -hmm. And all you'll need is inbound and that's, and you won't need a sales team. And the irony of that is, you know, HubSpot used OMG sales candidate assessments to hire a team of like 400 salespeople because even they realized they couldn't scale without salespeople. So it really comes down to this and they've, and they've done uh, sales processes dead, 
solution selling is dead, spin selling is dead, cold calling is dead, and they're close on cold calling, but only because people stop doing it, not because it doesn't work. It works great. It works better than email. It works better than social media because nobody's using it anymore. So um, you're you're in the middle of all the noise if you try to reach out via email, text, or social. But if you make a phone call, you're the only one. So as long as you can eventually get them to answer, you've got an audience. But um, now I now I pulled the sixty eight year old thing and lost my train of thought. I'm I'm sure it was going to be there. Uh, and I'm sure if you give me I'm another sure minute, I'll remember what I was going to say. It was, it was the best thing I was ever going to say about AI. Uh, it, it's about who's going to get replaced. So if you're an underdog, now who's an underdog? If you're not the most popular brand, if you're not the most well-known company, if you're not the price leader. You're an underdog. So that's almost everybody, right? Um, so if you have a story to tell, if you need to sell value, if it's really expensive, uh, if it's more expensive than the competition, then there is no substitute for a salesperson who can convey that message to the people you need it conveyed to. But if, if you're just another thing and it can be sold transactionally, it's like point and click became, you know, the internet did away with travel agents because that that they wrote an algorithm or a hundred uh, that allowed people to go on search point click buy. Well, that that doesn't happen if you're selling an underdog solution. You just can't do it. So there will always be sales positions for underdogs. But for the other roles where it's transactional, where companies just accepted the fact that they're going to do it by inbound and they can use AI to write terrible emails and uh, send them to people who delete them. An underdog is going to do that stuff. Yeah, yeah. Are you a commercial or business banker looking to build relationships with small and mid-sized companies? RelPro is a business development and relationship management solution being used by bankers to find new prospects, learn more about them, and keep tabs on them as well as your existing customers. Want to learn more? Go to RelPro.com to schedule a demo today. Um, one of the things you write about uh, really well is, is new salespeople. And you talk about getting to the decision maker early in the sales process for new salespeople, it's 10% or less. Um, I, I don't want to ask about that. I want to ask about ramping up new salespeople. In your experience, how long does it take to get a, a brand new salesperson to, to, to really be productive in a culture? It depends. Uh, it depends on what they're being asked to do and who they're being asked to do it to. So the higher up in an organization that they need to call on, uh, the harder that is, the longer that's going to take. The more that the role uh, requires cold calling, the harder that is, the longer that's going to take. But if they're calling on existing accounts and there's already a red carpet for them and all they have to do is pick up the phone and talk to an existing customer, if they've sold before, they should be able to morph into that role within 30 days. Um, but I do have some thoughts about ramp up. Um, 
You know, some companies do classroom training. Some companies do one-on-one training. Some companies send their salespeople out with their best salespeople and, you know, for joint sales calls. And, And that's okay as long as the boss sits down and talks to the salesperson and says, you're going to be going out with Jack Hubbard. Now, Jack's our best salesperson. And I want you to pay attention very closely to when he does A, B, C, and D. Hmm. But Jack also does some stuff that only works for Jack. It's not repeatable. It's not duplicable. It's not going to work for you. So when he does E, F, G, and H, just sit there in amusement, but don't write it down and don't try to do what he's doing. And then we'll send that salesperson out with somebody else and do the same thing. And after they've been out with those salespeople, and and I can't understand why this doesn't happen, but why aren't they debriefed? What did you learn while you were out riding along with Jack? And what, what did you see and hear Jack do that you believe you can do? If, if you're, coached to do it and what did you hear and see jack do that you would be uncomfortable doing and out of those things which of those things that you'd be uncomfortable with do you need to do that i need to help you with and which of those things do you not need to do and it's pretty simple stuff and it it's common sense but nobody's doing this yeah that's sales isn't it it's it's common sense i mean is if you're selling you know siemens products to big medical operations it's uh, yeah obviously got to have some real good smarts about you but it is it is fairly common sense um all right let me rapid fire a couple of things for you as we wrap up i I value your time you talked a little while ago and you just briefly mentioned crm Um, i've heard that up to 80 percent of crm engagements fail that it's just a big waste of time it's a high price pac-man game Talk about what you're seeing in CRM, what's working and why. Wow, the only questions you're asking me today are these loaded, triple-packed questions that don't have simple answers. You know, most CRM fails, um, not because of which CRM they choose, although most companies are choosing the wrong CRM. Most companies are choosing Salesforce because isn't that the one we're supposed to get? And Salesforce is atrocious. Salespeople hate it and will not use it unless they're forced to use it. So if they've already invested, you know, tens or hundreds of thousand dollars in Salesforce, then they're not going to get the information they need out of Salesforce in real time unless they require salespeople to use it. So it has to be a condition for continued employment, period. Use it properly, you can stay. Not willing to use it properly, we'll find somebody who is. But you know, that's that's only a band-aid. The the what a company needs to do is have a CRM that salespeople want to use because the CRM is actually helping them succeed. And there are such CRMs. They're just not the most popular choice, but they're built really well and they're not frivolous and they aren't overbuilt and they're not difficult to navigate, but the tools are built in to guide a salesperson through a customized sales process and provide content and provide suggestions and provide playbooks. And it's all, it's like great spaghetti sauce. It's in there. 
And if if the salespeople want to use it because they're getting value from it, then the company gets what they need because the information's up to date in real time and all they have to do is click and they have what they need. I don't know if you're seeing this, but in banking, a lot of times when a bank wants to you do a CRM, they'll have operations, risk, credit, executives, but nobody from sales is on the team. How can you expect salespeople to use it if they don't have input? Anyway, uh, you yeah, and, and I- that's and that's one of the problems with CRM is the bank or the manufacturer or the distributor or whoever it is, the SaaS company, they want everybody to have access to all the conversations that anybody's ever had with the customer, which is the original contact management element of CRM. But they don't see CRM for what its real purpose is, which is to help salespeople close business. Okay, here's another rapid fire question for you. This should be a little simpler because you're Yay. you talked about social selling. Where does social selling fit in to the sales process? And li- LinkedIn specifically. Link- LinkedIn uh, can be a colossal waste of time. It. It's it's almost like the mainstream mainstream media, or it's an echo chamber, and everybody's saying the same things. So, you know, while you have your followers and I have my followers, a lot of the people that follow me are other people like me, like like you, <laughs> uh, and we're talking to each other more than we're talking to a huge population of what we would call users or subscribers or professionals in the sales space. So it's not a bad thing. Um, And we've all built these extensive networks of people who decide to follow us or connect with us that we really don't know. You know, if you've got 10,000 people following you, maybe you truly know a couple hundred of them and the rest of them just decided to follow you. Uh, And there's probably less than 5% of all the LinkedIn members that are active at all that actually use it and, and open it on a daily basis. And the time during which they might be engaged is a fraction of that. So really a lot of the information going out on, on LinkedIn isn't seen by anybody that you want to see it. So I'm, I wouldn't say don't use it, but I would say don't expect LinkedIn to grow your revenue. Um, it, it's a way of reaching people that you wouldn't otherwise have if you relied on the phone or email alone. You can find who you want to connect with. You can send a message and you can cross your fingers that they reply to it instead of deleting it. But it's, it's just a third avenue of reaching people. Okay. It does. It can give you some credibility if you're out there contributing in a meaningful way, like you do and I do. Uh, so, from that, people might reach out to you and say, "Hey, you know, I've been following you for 18 years, and I'm ready to connect." <laughs> That's that happens too. Doesn't it? It, does. it really does. It does. It really does. <laughs> and and then you wonder sometimes all the effort you go into putting into content and connecting and value and all that, if it's really worth it, it's, it's a valid point. Now you've taken a different tack with this though, in 2024. I love your rants. Uh, they're two or three minute videos. Talk about that and why you did that. Uh, sometimes I'm so frustrated that if I wait till tomorrow to write an article, the thing that frustrated me will disappear into the ether. 
because I don't retain new information the way I used to. Um, but if I, re if I just turn on the camera and record a rant right now, I can capture the essence of what it was that frustrated me. Uh, so in some ways it's for me, it's so that I can get the right message out there. Um, but the other thing is the video rants get three times the reads and views as posts. So they go further. They have more visibility. Uh, they get more engagement. They get more traction. Yeah. Um You've been so gracious with your time. I, I, you know, I've been following. You've you. asked such great questions. Well, thank you. Uh, I've been following you for years, and and uh, I saw you on Larry Levine's uh, and Daryl Amy's podcast, and and you had just a blast with them. It was really fun, and and I said I got I got to have Dave on because I've been following you for such a long time. But, but speaking of following, um, uh, two more questions. Uh, you 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 read you read a lot. I'm sure you follow people. You listen to podcasts. Who are some of the folks that you're reading, listening to that that we ought to know about? Great question. Um, the books I read are all over the place. I like autobiographies. I like mystery thrillers. Um, I tend not to read sales books anymore. Uh, there's nothing new being written. There's nothing innovative being written. It's just a lot of regurgitated stuff. And that doesn't excite me. So I read to, to escape from what I do during the day, uh, not to not to get more frustrated than I already am. Uh, in terms of um, blogs, uh, I like Dave Brock's writing. Uh, I like Anthony Anarino's writing. I like Keenan's writing. Uh, in terms of podcasts, I, the one you mentioned with Larry Levine and Daryl Amy is really good. Walter Crosby has a good one. Uh, yours is a good one. Uh, one of the guys on my Curlin team, uh, Derek Baer, uh, he has one called Constructing Success that's surprisingly good. Uh, has great content. They're just too long. I can't, I can't hang in there for that long. <laughs> well, let me ask you just one more kind of personal question. And if you can't answer, I appreciate it. Your, your son's a senior in college. Uh, he's no doubt played thousands of hours of baseball in his life, and he's he's succeeding. What's next for him? What what do you see after after college for him? Well, he he would love a front office job with a baseball team, preferably the Boston Red Sox. So, <laughs> well, they need the help. God, do they need the help? You you live around here too, don't you? In the Boston, I live area? in Chicago, but but we, oh. you know. Theo for a while and and but, yep. but I follow baseball a lot and the Cubs in Boston were in about the same situation last yeah. three years and the common denominator is Theo yeah. he he was he was uh great at building winning baseball teams so the plan for Mike uh is he's gonna apply to grad school preferably uh Boston College and uh take uh switch over to a sports administration major um, he's going to work with uh, Dan Evans, the former general manager of the Dodgers, and go hit through his, so you want to be a major league scout or talent evaluator or baseball operations guy. He's going to get mentored by Dan and uh, hopefully uh, land a job that'll eventually get him to a front office of the baseball team. Good for him. I hope he succeeds. And then, and then I'll need a new hobby. Because yeah, my my hobby is videotaping every, every play of every baseball game. 
Well, it's nice that he's close that you can see him and do that. That's really good. Um, yeah, only two hours and 45 minutes each way. That's not bad. That's not bad. And he must have a spring training trip, so you get to go to Florida or Arizona. Florida, or that's right. That's good. That's good. Um, thank you, Dave. This has been great. How do people get a hold of you if uh, if they want to reach you? Uh, email. It's Love email. D yeah, D Curlin, K-U-R-L-A-N, at Curlin associates.com or you can go to my blog the blog is understanding the sales force and or you can type in dave curlin's blog and uh, there's a button you can click to contact me that way or you can direct message me on linkedin same name dave, dave curlin go, go follow dave <laughs> The, the thing that you did, I I want to say it was late last year, early in 2024, There and you made a point around the, these puppies. There was all these puppies, and, and only like one of them made, to, made it to the food in a very, very unique way, and the others were going to starve. You made some really good points on that. So you got to follow Dave. He, he, he writes well, he rants well, and he interviews well. Thanks for your time today, Dave. Really appreciate Thanks it. Thanks so much for having me, Jack. I had fun. Thanks, as always, for listening to this episode of Jack Rants with Modern Bankers with my guest today, and he was a great one, Dave Curlin. This and every program is brought to you by our friends at Vertical IQ and RelPro. Join us next time for more special guests bringing you marketing, sales, and leadership insights, as well as ideas to provide your bank and credit union that competitive edge you need to succeed this year. This LinkedIn Live show is also a podcast. Subscribe to get the latest editions of Jack Rants with Modern Bankers. And don't forget, please, please leave us a review. We're on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Play, iHeartRadio, and others. Visit our website too, themodernbanker.com, and you'll get lots more information there. Now, don't forget though, to sign up for that free public library. We add stuff every week, and it's at themodernbanker.com slash public library. Make today and every day a great client day.